as I say, there are a lot of people saying this is going to destroy humanity and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, we need to give, we need to listen to those concerns because they can probably help us a lot. Hello and welcome to Corporate Social Impact Insights. I'm Siddharth Chatterjee from the AVPN Academy team. And this is a series where we interview experts and leaders to learn about how we can amplify our contribution as practitioners in the corporate social impact space. Our conversation today is with Chris Malone, partner at Dalberg, the world's leading advisory firm in social impact and global development. One of the areas of Chris's research at Dalberg over the last few months has been on how the philanthropy sector can and has been engaging with artificial intelligence. And that brings us to the topic for today. How could philanthropy use AI and how could AI use philanthropy? In the conversation that follows, we speak about eight areas where philanthropies might use artificial intelligence to transform the ways that they operate. We also go into how philanthropies can become centers of excellence, supporting grantee organizations in adopting new technologies. Finally, Chris tells us about how AI could use philanthropy, especially the need for funding in AI research. In this last part, we touch on existential risk from AI, discussing why we need all kinds of philanthropists supporting research into all kinds of AI risks and possibilities. This is a wide-ranging conversation and it sometimes gets technical. So apart from advising you to refer to the timestamps in the description, my advice for getting the most of the ideas in this conversation would be to think in tranches. So first, what's an idea that I can take action on today? Second, what are ideas that might be relevant in the coming few years? And finally, what are the questions that might inform my thinking over the next few decades? With that, let's get into the conversation. Hi, Chris. It's wonderful to have you join us today. To get us started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at Dalberg? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sid. I, I really appreciate being on the podcast. So at Dalberg, I cover the Southeast Asia markets mostly. I'm a partner here. I'm a recent partner in that I joined Dalberg after my firm, which was a boutique firm, was acquired by Dalberg earlier this year. And, and before that, I've had a long history with some of the big consulting firms, Boston Consulting Group and others. And my, my work relates to a few different areas. It relates to technology, which I think is what we're going to focus on today. I do a lot of work in economic development. And in terms of a geography, I'm really focused on, on Vietnam. I've, I've been working for many years in Vietnam and Vietnam is, you know, one of my subjects of interest. Amazing. Thanks so much, Chris. And you're absolutely right. We are going to be talking about technology today, more specifically philanthropy and artificial intelligence. So maybe to just give us a little bit of context, what has your work on technology and around artificial intelligence? What has that been about? Well, one of the easiest examples to talk about is, is our work with Google. So Google has a very big education business, you know, all sorts of different technology from hardware to software to digital platforms in the education business. And we work with Google all over Asia Pacific. And in, in recent months, we've been starting to roll out a program of pilots that include AI technology and exploring how that technology is used in the classroom, which I think is a really interesting and important area. In parallel to that, like a lot of organizations, Dahlberg is really asking itself, what does 
AI mean in particular generative AI, you know, which is where all the excitement is right now. What does generative AI mean for the philanthropic sector? And so we've done quite a bit of research over the last few months to try and track and measure a little bit what's happening in the sector. Who's doing what? How are people using things? And we're looking forward to publishing that before the end of the year, but I'm happy to share some of what we found in this discussion. Perfect. And thanks for getting us started. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Lots of organizations are thinking about that question now that generative AI especially has become so mainstream and has kind of accelerated in a way in terms of what it can achieve. So people are asking, what does artificial intelligence mean for the various industries that we're part of? And for corporate social impact practitioners, often the question is about how does that change the way we do philanthropy? So could you tell us a little bit about how philanthropists and maybe corporate social impact practitioners should be thinking about artificial intelligence and how they can engage with artificial intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in these discussions, sometimes it's quite helpful to kind of set some bookends to the subject, because if you follow the subject, you know that there are those people that say that AI presents a existential threat to humanity. And there are others who say it's going to solve every problem from hunger to illiteracy and, uh, and everything in between. So a helpful way to start is to set some boundaries around what might the risks be and, and what are the opportunities. And, you know, Sid, when I think about the opportunities, for me, one of the most helpful examples is in healthcare. Actually, healthcare has attracted the highest level of investment in AI along with financial services. So financial services and healthcare are really the two big ones that are attracting a lot of investment. And one of the most interesting technologies I find is something that Google has been developing, which is, which is called MedPalm2. So this is a large language model that is tailored very specifically for healthcare. So it uses a lot of healthcare data. So you could imagine, you know, it's like these large language models that we interact with as consumers, but this is a specialized one for healthcare. And there have been tests on what that model can do in terms of can it pass a medical licensing exam, specifically the US medical licensing exam. And in at the end of 2022, the MedPalm2 system successfully passed the medical licensing exam, or at least its responses to questions were at the pass level at a 67% pass rate, which is pretty impressive because those are tough clinical questions that the, the examination sets. Now, by April of this year, its pass rate was 86%. So that just gives you a sense of the huge uplift in terms of performance that these systems are able to do because they have access to more data and the parameters are being expanded and so forth. Now, let's assume that you know within a relatively short amount of time, that performance is going to get into the 90s, 90s percent. So that means that it would be pretty much impossible to find any human doctor that could perform at that level consistently across all the different subjects. So then, you know, that's encapsulated in one large language model, which could be made accessible through a mobile phone. And then you start to think about what that could do to healthcare access. Now, at the same time, of course, concerns and risks come to mind about, well, what about 
the risks of you know using this this information or using this system independent of healthcare professionals but simply put the the idea that a very advanced level of medical information can be made accessible and interrogated on a simple platform for me is a truly transformational technology that opens up all sorts of possibilities so I thought I might start with that just as a just as an example. You know, that's one bookend. And then if I could add, Sid, the other bookend about risk. So on the subject of risk, there's no better way to, to think about risk than what has actually happened already. And as I say, there are a lot of people saying this is going to destroy humanity and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, we need to give, we need to listen to those concerns because they can probably help us a lot in thinking about what higher probability risks are. But if you think about the first major interaction between AI and human society, that's social media. And so that's played out over the last 10, 15 years. And in that first interaction, you know, human society definitely came off worse and AI right. you know, was the winner, so to speak. I.e., yes, we got more connectivity, we got more entertainment, we got uh, richer information flows and more personalized information flows through social media, but we also got political polarization, serious damage to mental health. In particular, I think it's now quite well proven that in particular female mental health in the teenage years and, and so forth, you know, these very unfortunate examples that we have of damage that was unintended, but came in a way organically from the interaction between humans and AI. And so there we have it. Those for me are the bookends. That's the, you know, one end of the risk. It doesn't involve the termination of humanity, but it does involve some pretty significant deleterious effects. And then on the other side, we've got these amazing opportunities that are opened by that. And, you know, as we talk further, I'm happy to go into more specific examples for philanthropies, but those, that kind of paints the spectrum for me. Right. And thanks so much for giving us that nuanced picture, because I think it's really important. Because when I think about AI, I don't necessarily think about the social media algorithms. I don't think about a far more nuanced kind of language, large language model, like you're talking about with healthcare, right? For me, the first thing that comes to mind is the generative AI that we've, we've seen, very popular, common chatbots, which are yeah. quite general in their application. But it's really interesting to know that the possibilities are far more nuanced. So even on the side of dangers, and on the side of possibilities, it's a really textured landscape. And it's one that we're just about figuring out how to look at. So I think for corporates and for philanthropists, it's really important perspective is you you can't be on either side of the fence, AI, good or bad, because it's such a nuanced and subtle picture. And there are so many applications of AI, for example, the social media algorithm that I wouldn't initially think of as artificial intelligence. But I think you're absolutely yeah. right. It is a way in which we've interacted with AI and it's a way in which it has had positive and negative consequences. The balance probably towards the, the negative, I would say, you know, in terms of that, which raises this interesting question, which we can discuss later said about regulation. During that 15 year period of the expansion of social media, there was very, very little regulation around this. And I think if we could play the last 15 years again, we'd probably have a lot more controls and regulation over how AI interacted with society through social media and so you know that's uh, obviously a negative but now we're at this next chapter where the ai is much much more powerful but at least 
we have a sense of the risk. And so we can, right. we can do things to try and counteract the risks. Right. And I think that's really kind of, and something we will get into is a lot of AI's development has been sort of unforeseen. I'm sure we had a sense of people who are at the edge of this technology had a sense of the possibilities, but the way that it develops is really quite organic in a way that we can't really predict where it's going to go as a technology and what is going to get really good at sometimes. That's why it's quite important for us to think about research and try to lay out the good and bad possibilities that could happen so we can protect for them and also take the opportunities that, that will be there. But let's get into specifically how philanthropists might think about AI uh, and how they might engage with AI. So what's maybe what's the low-hanging fruit or what's the most exciting but also quite doable next steps for philanthropists? It's a really important subject because I think at this point, as I mentioned before, a lot of the energy and effort and investment is going into other areas, is going into maybe more commercial areas. And that's good. That's, that's you know, legitimate and good. And we want to see more of that. But we also want to make sure that the philanthropic sector doesn't kind of get left behind by this and, and keeps with the pace. So a lot of what we have been doing is just thinking about the basic ways that philanthropies can, can use generative AI. And we've come up with eight areas based on our research. And I can give you an example of some of them. So one area relates to what should philanthropies focus on. Using AI, you can really improve your kind of sensing networks. You know, you can churn through a lot more data and you can see a lot more trends very quickly. And that allows philanthropies to spot issues early and to plan interventions at an earlier stage and therefore at much lower cost. So that's one short-term you know, responsiveness where AI can be used. A second one is at the other end of the time spectrum where it's possible to use AI and the sort of simulative power of AI to think about second order, third order effects and much longer term scenarios, kind of long-termism thinking. And therefore that again gives philanthropies a better idea of how they can make interventions today. So those are two areas, you know, sensing for quick reaction and then thinking profoundly and using the using the technology for for longer ones the third and fourth areas relate to grantees so a lot of philanthropies say that they struggle a little bit with a grantee identification you know maybe they've got a program in a very specific area but they struggle to move outside some of the the better known grantees that they're traditionally working with and ai is very good or generative ai is very good at sifting through a lot of information and prioritizing that information in you know, subjects, geographies, areas where the philanthropy may have no previous expertise. So it can really help get up the curve. So that's identification of grantees. The fourth one, which is a little bit what we would call the kind of second level of what philanthropies can do is about building capacity with grantees. So I might come back to that a little bit later as we just go through these. And you know, if you want to hear more about that, how can philanthropies help to build capacity? At fifth and sixth relate to programs and specifically the design of programs. So I think this is a really exciting one where there's a big burden to design programs in the right way and make sure that there's evidence-based. The idea of digital twinning is a really interesting way of trying to bring forward the insights that you can get from testing. So let's say, you know, we're thinking about a program that relates to clean water access. In the manufacturing 
industry, it's possible to create a digital twin of a manufacturing process and then run a million simulations on that to try and find out what are the weak points, where is it going to break down, where's the machine going to pop or overheat or something. And you can really stress test philanthropic programs using the same methodology. So creating a digital twin. Now, it won't give the same insights as a, a long-term RCT because there's really nothing to replace that. However, it'll certainly give the insights sooner than that because those trials, you know, they take years, whereas this type of simulation can be done in days. Then at the somewhat at the other end of a program, the AI can be used to help with MEL, so evaluation. And why can it be used to help with MEL? Because the consumption of vast amounts of data and the processing of that is now possible. So let's imagine that we're talking about a, a program to improve school performance measured by school tests. Assuming that we're in an environment where there is possibility to have digital tests or indeed the possibility to turn tests into digital using character recognition and so on with all of those technologies that are available today. Then an AI can go through every single test of every single student and everything that those students have produced, indeed an entire education system worth of materials and assessments over time and process those. Now that's going to really tell you where there was progress in the education system, you know, versus a single narrow view that you may get from a, a post-program assessment. So having that ability to really see systemic improvements is something that we really haven't had before. And then to conclude the list, the final two relate to, first of all, fundraising. So it's possible using AI to kind of reach out to more retail fundraisers in particular, you know, in the same way that let's say fashion brands or Netflix uses AI to adjust the images and the messages that they send to trigger a, a, the right response from people. Philanthropies can use that technology in their retail fundraising. And then the final point is really around stakeholder management. So this is akin to how companies use AI for customer interactions, for live customer interactions, which is now possible with the natural language processing. So keeping stakeholders abreast of what's happening, it's now possible for philanthropies to do that empowered by AI and natural language processing, which ultimately saves a lot of time so that their resources can be put to more directly into impact. So those are the eight areas. Thanks so much, because that's such a wonderful kind of summary of a really complex and a lot of work that you've done. So thanks so much for articulating that. I was resisting the temptation to furiously take notes. I, I did take a few. But I know that this is not the conversation for us to go really deep into each of these areas. So rather just to kind of get a view of the terrain overall. So maybe if I could try to summarize, basically, because of AI's abilities to process lots of data, run a lot of simulations, there are going to be possibilities, both in terms of simulating and trying to understand complex systems and how they might work and respond to intervention, but also in terms of finding out about early intervention, so scanning for more information, also mm -hmm. about how you reach out both to whether that's fundraising, but also to grantees. It can help you make a variety of more personalized outreaches and also evaluate quicker. Basically, it can do a lot of things that would 
require lots of data processing and simulation. And really the opportunity is for organizations to look at their workflows and where they can use AI as it continues to evolve rapidly. Great summary, Sid. Better than uh, ChatGPT. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I know you're being very kind, but I will take it. Perfect. But I will also take the opportunity to go into one area which you spoke about, which is going further into working with grantees. So you said that, and, and I absolutely agree, sometimes philanthropy as a space can be a bit abreast or left behind a little bit from how other other industries innovate. But maybe a group that gets left behind even more sometimes is the nonprofit space. Um, mm -hmm. So how could grantees benefit from AI and how could philanthropy help them? Yeah, great question. And I can answer it at a somewhat high level. Obviously, it's very specific to those circumstances. First of all, I think at the high level, the thing that philanthropies can do is just help their grantees to identify where they can adopt these technologies to increase the, the capacity of the grantees. Because often these grantees are super capacity constrained. First of all, they don't have enough capacity for what they're doing. Secondly, they're trying to you know, spend the resources they've been granted very carefully. And thirdly, they often don't have any time to kind of put their heads up and think about uh, you know, what's out there that can help me. But in general, a lot of what grantees are doing are knowledge work, right? It's knowledge work. It's designing programs. It's uh, finding ways to implement those programs and so on and so forth. And the very basic uplift in productivity that can happen when an organization, even a small organization, uses generative AI is quite spectacular. And for this, I can refer to a really interesting Harvard Business School study that was done with my friends and, and former colleagues at uh, Boston Consulting Group. So there was a quite early on, it was done early this year, there was a, a pretty deep investigation into how does it actually change the work that people are doing or how can it change? And a few things that came out of that, I think are really, really helpful to keep in mind when philanthropies are thinking about how can they help their grantees with those constrained resources. So the study was done over about 750 employees. They were all given the same tasks, but some were given the tasks without AI and some were asked to do the tasks with AI. And so in general, those that were doing the tasks with AI, and these are things like, you know, write a report, come up with some ideas for growth, those types of, you know, typical challenges that people may be facing in these, you know, knowledge intensive jobs. The results were as follows, 12% increase on the number of tasks that people could do in the AI group relative to the control group where they did not have access, a 12% increase in the number of tasks, 25% increase in speed of the average task, but the real standout result was 40% increase in quality. So the quality of the work oh. was measured by a kind of independent panel who are saying, you know, this is a 10 out of 10, this is a six out of 10. And there was a 40% increase in the quality of work from the group that was working with the AI. And so this might be something like, let's come up with a challenge. How can we encourage people to uh, have higher compliance to a vaccine regime or something like that? The teams may be working on those things. And the assumption here is that by using generative AI, they can quickly access ideas, even creative ideas and information that can really improve their performance on those tasks. So that was really standout for me, seeing that 
that 40% increase. And then if we think about something a little bit more tangible, I mean, a lot of problems can be solved with, with technology these days and with, with apps and, you know, so the underlying coding activity is really critical. There is a about 50% uplift in terms of output that a team using generative AI can achieve relative to a team not using. So, you know, generative AI is pretty good at supporting coding and, and software development, but that's, you know, you can basically do double. So if you've got a small shop who's trying to create apps for farmers to Im improve something about the way they do their work, those apps can be created with half the team size now because of the support that, that those teams can get from ChatGPT or whatever system um, they're using. So really impressive productivity increases, but these grantees, I think, don't have time to get into that. And so that's really where I, I think that philanthropy should become almost like centers of excellence for how these improvements can be can be done. They need to kind of carry the best practice and then they can share it with, with their grantees and have teams that coach them and help them to achieve more impact with the same resources. Amazing. You really hit the nail on the head. Philanthropy is as centers of excellence because I think the conversation really for a lot of philanthropy has shifted from simply being grant makers to how can we holistically support grantees and support the ecosystem. So an avenue of grantee support is just in terms of how do you help their operations become so much better. And, and it's quite astounding to hear some of the, not just the productivity, but even the quality increases that you spoke about, which is a little counterintuitive. People tend to think that using generative AI will help you get things done faster, but maybe not as well. So it's quite incredible to see this simply as a technology that makes operations a lot more productive, even possibly higher quality, and it can really help grantees if philanthropists are able to help them take advantage of best practices that they're observing from their Indeed. point. You know, I, I wanted to pick up on that point, Sid, because it, it is really fascinating. In this research that was conducted, they referred to the jagged edge of innovation, i.e. in some areas, the generative AI can really help. And in other areas, it can't help as much. In fact, in some areas, it was indeed counterproductive to use generative AI. So this technology has a kind of jagged edge. And so it is really important for there to be some source of insight as to what you can use it for and what you can't use it for. Because if you just go into it blind, there's a risk. Well, there are many risks, right? I think, you know, we've read about them, the risks of hallucination, i.e., you know, making up information, the risks of bias in the underlying data set, all of those things. This may bring us onto regulation at some point, but all of those things are real, they're real risks. And so some, yes, center of excellence on how to use it and where you can use it, I think is much needed. Thanks so much for pointing that out. So we've talked about so far how philanthropy could use AI broadly, but what I found really interesting in when we spoke about this before is how you mentioned how AI could use philanthropy and philanthropic support. So could you tell us a little bit about mm -hmm why AI could be an area where philanthropists actually think about as an area of yeah. having impact and giving grants and things like that. And I, I love that turn of expression. That was yours, not mine, um, how AI can use philanthropy, but I think it really can, yeah. I think we, we are facing, in a way, what could be described as another kind of ozone hole crisis, you know, or the hole in the ozone layer, you know, which was this environmental crisis, I guess now 30, 40 years ago, 
solved by the you know prohibition of CFCs. But we kind of have this hole in the protective layer right now of how we should use generative AI and what are the risks and so forth. Like the as was the case for social media, as we speak today, there is precious little regulation and guidance and norms around how it could be used. And this, you know, constitutes the hole in the in the ozone layer. And this is a hole that isn't just located over Australia as the, you know, the ozone. It's a hole over every country, a hole over every house. So it's pretty serious. And I do think that there are now multiple stakeholders moving into this space and trying to figure out how those protections can be put in place. And this is really happening in real time right now. You know, lots of people are working on it. This is an area where lots of different actors are moving into this space and trying to take their particular view on it. So I think this is super important going forward. Right. And could you just talk a little bit about what is this, the hole? What is the gap? What's the danger here? Well, I think the issue here is that we don't really know how the dangers are going to manifest themselves. That's the main challenge. But as I said before, we can take as a proxy the risks that emerge from the social media experience. I think those are really good ones. But you don't need to look far to find some serious issues that are emerging today. For example, the use of really powerful deep fakes in political discourse. You know, that's one that is very much a contemporary issue. And misinformation in general, that's really at the sharp end of the risks. Right. So we're thinking about risks that are basically technology risks and they're completely expounded or accelerated by how quickly AI develops and how many ways it can be used. So it's just about the ways AI is used, how it's regulated and the things that you can do with it. And I think part of the issue is that the technology is moving so fast that it's pretty hard for people to keep up. So, you know, I've seen various estimations on the, the pace of innovation here, but it's one that I've seen is that the underlying technologies of the processing power, you know, the GPUs, it's reasonable to contemplate a doubling in improvement. It's also reasonable to contemplate a doubling over a year. It's reasonable to contemplate a doubling of improvement in terms of the performance of the models. And then constant large improvements in the amount of data that they can access. And so, you know, when you multiply that out, you're looking at a 10, 20 X improvement over the course of a year. How do you regulate for that? You know, right now, the way regulation is moving, I think has taken, and first of all, I should say, I think it is wonderful that, that governments are trying to regulate this and are trying to get involved because they definitely need to. And this is where philanthropies come in because philanthropies can take a little bit of a broader perspective, a little bit of a longer term perspective and be very apolitical about it, take a view on the benefits as well as the risks. And I think philanthropies can develop deep expertise into the moral and ethical issues here. But the way governments are thinking about regulation right now is somewhat a derivative of how they regulate the banking sector. And so they regulate around processes and systems. So the checking of processes and systems as opposed to outcomes, and they reserve the right to sort of audit the algorithms. 
So it's akin to a, a regulator going in and, and looking at a bank's risk systems. The issue with that is it works perfectly well for banking because banking moves very slowly, famously slowly. But those speeds of increase that I was describing, you can regulate and inspect a system and create some rules for it that exist today, but you need to throw that out 12 months from now because things are changing so fast. So during this period, a lot of what I read on the subject guides towards trying to keep a light touch on regulation so it doesn't stress the innovation and slow down the innovation, but keeping a very, very clear eye on the negative impacts. So what are the, the risks or what are the actual harms that are happening on the users? And so I think, how can philanthropies come into this? Well, the, the good news is that philanthropies are already, in particular in the US, deploying some of their funds to address these problems. And only some of them, this is not widespread. So we, we've done a, some research on the current grant making into AI. That's where we could see that high level of grant making going into financial services and healthcare and so forth. But what we have found are that there are some organizations, for example, open philanthropy, that are putting significant amount of grants into the safe use of AI and you know how can we understand the potential harms and so forth. So there's an emerging sector of players who are investing in understanding what the risks are and how they can be mitigated, but it's not really widespread right now. And I think actually here we are in Asia, I think there's a huge role for philanthropies in Asia to start putting more attention into this space. And it would be a huge service, I think, to society. Right. And I think this is, as you articulated, the way that AI develops and the speed at which it's developing. And we've seen that with how AI chatbots kind of crept up on us in the last yeah. couple of years. It is really a whole gamut of possibilities is open. So we've, we've the more slightly more foreseeable risks like we've seen with social media. But then we have also on the other end of the spectrum, over the long term, some really extreme risks, existential risk. And that's something that open philanthropy does research a lot. So you need, in a way, you need philanthropists thinking about all these kinds of different problems. And I think it was really well put when you said near the beginning of our conversation today that it's really good that there are some people who are concerned about the extreme and maybe lower probability in some way. Hard to estimate that, but extreme mm -hmm. long-term possibilities in, in terms of existential risks and so on. Because we need to be thinking about every probability and every kind of risk, especially with how open-ended this field seems to be. So thanks so much for putting that across. Did you have anything to add on existential? I was, I was just, you know, on existential risk. I just, I'm involved in a university in Vietnam, and very great for us. One of my fellow board members is one of the top AI scientists at Google, a Vietnamese scientist, and he spoke at the university. and And one of the things that he said is, we have to learn how to exist with a species that is more intelligent than us. Now, not everyone will agree with his framing of that, but I personally think that's a very interesting way of looking at it. This can be seen as a species of being that is, maybe it doesn't have uh, you know, consciousness and so forth, but it can act, it can think, it can do things, and is pretty likely to be more intelligent than us in the very near future across a very broad range of activities. That's a profound change to everything we've ever experienced. And I think, 
thinking about the implications of that. You know, we need well-funded social scientists, philosophers, ethicists thinking about those subjects and trying to understand and simulate what may happen. And in this game of the computer scientists versus the uh, you know moral philosophers, there's a lot more investment on the side of the computer scientists right now. I, I give you one example, Sid, which is the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, which is immensely generous in its you know healthcare giving and so forth in the US, gave half a billion dollars to Harvard to set up the Kempton Institute. And the, the Kempton Institute focuses on what they call natural and artificial intelligence, which is great, great subject to focus on. But that's half a billion dollars of money put almost exclusively into uh, computer science and some you know, neuroscience. There isn't, to my knowledge, a single ethicist or f moral philosopher or, or anyone of that sort on the team there. And that's, well, is that good or bad? I don't know. I, what I conclude from that is that at least with those funds, we need to look to philanthropies to balance that out. You know, if people are investing that much in the kind of hard science of this, we need philanthropies to balance it out or other philanthropies, because this was philanthropic in the first place, but we need other philanthropies to put investment on the other side of the scale so that we can navigate the next 15 years. Right. As a background, I did my undergraduate thesis on the philosophy of consciousness. So AI opens a whole can of worms. With, oh, well, amazing. You're in the center of the storm then. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about that. Um, uh, philosophers are famously out of the picture sometimes. But I, I think it's this really important point, which is to understand that AI is, is driven by a particular industry, often technology, the technology industry. And as such, a lot of the way that AI develops reflects the biases of, of the particular industry that it's developed, just like a financial instrument might reflect the biases of the banking industry. And often it's up to philanthropists and the philanthropy sector to figure out where there are gaps and where things happen unevenly. So where is the tech sector not focusing on AI risks? What is it biased against looking at? And I think in that way, philanthropists play a very important role in uh, taking Agreed. a look at the bigger picture. So it's, it's a really important conversation to continue having. A final thing that I wanted to talk about. So thank you so much for laying out this entire field. There's a lot here. It can seem overwhelming, but I think Part of my takeaway today has been that we do have to think about it in granular terms, or we do have to bite-size it to an extent. There, there are low-hanging fruit here in terms of what you can improve or take advantage of, also what basic or high-probability risks you should guard against. And of course, then there are more theoretical, more long-term, more unpredictable consequences and possibilities, and we all have to deal with the volatility of our current times. So that is something to deal with, but it's it's not the whole thing, neither is it something that you might have to address tomorrow. It, it is in some ways a long-term conversation that as an entire ecosystem, we have to figure out together. So lots to think about there. I did want to point to one last thing which you'd mentioned in our conversation before, which is about how corporates might think about corporate social impact as a way of experimenting and how AI is a great example for how that could happen. So could you go into that? Yeah, sure. I mean, two thoughts on that, one one small and one larger. I do think that social impact work occupies this interesting space in corporates where, you know, often it's 
an additional activity on the side of their main operations, obviously connected to the main operations. But I think it does present a really interesting arena for innovation, experimentation, a sort of sandbox in a way. Now, of course, everyone has the same duty of care. So you can't just do ill-prepared experimentation on healthcare matters or something like that. But it does, it can be a part of the organization that is a little bit separate from the organization's main risks that can allow for experimentation. So if I was leading the some of the CSR work for a large corporate, I may be making my case to be a place where innovation and experimentation can happen as a priority rather than at the end of the queue. So I think that's the first point. The second point I would make is how should corporates, well, I think corporates are already thinking about AI in this way. The really interesting outcomes happen when you combine the large language models with proprietary data sets and then the reinforcement that you can get from users or reinforcement through human feedback, RLHF. So that's a situation that many corporates are in and combining access to these large language models with interesting proprietary data, which you know may be on something like aircraft movements or maybe something on like, you know, how product flows through a distribution system. That's where we're going to get the really interesting innovation breakthroughs. And I think that's how corporates are thinking about it, should be thinking about it. That's a reminder to say that philanthropies also have access to very interesting proprietary data about impact. And they need to be thinking about less interacting with these large language models, you know, through a chatbot or sort of through, through the web but more taking the underlying infrastructure and implementing that in their core business. And I think like a lot of very interesting things will come from that. I'll give you a, a kind of whimsical example to finish off, Sid, which is, you know, we spoke about healthcare and this idea that, well, we can't just let people have access to like a you know, large language model that has healthcare, you know, like a sort of an independent robot doctor. But actually, if you think about the way a lot of um, healthcare works, there is a role for individual opinion in healthcare. You know, I believe in this procedure, another doctor may believe in a different procedure. So when you intermesh the idiosyncrasies of a particular uh, a medic's way of doing things with the large language model to make sure it's built on a huge underlying basis of, of information, then you could imagine the most interesting results coming. So if I want to get advice from this particular doctor I can't afford to see that doctor, or maybe that doctor doesn't have time for me, but I may be able to interact with some kind of digital version of that doctor that is a blend of that doctor's point of view, their proprietary information, and the power of the large language model. So a sort of virtual version of, mm. you know, Dr. Sid, so to speak, which expands the reach of that doctor whilst preserving their standards and their reputation. And ultimately, the doctor takes the risk. The risk still sits with the doctor because they've used these technologies to expand their footprint. So that's a view of the world that I think may emerge. There's sort of multiple language models, multiple smaller AIs, individual ownership. And that world, I think, is somehow quite appropriate for the philanthropic and you know social, social impact sphere. Right. Yeah, that's something to look forward to. And as a word of caution, Dr. Sid would be very dangerous 
uh, person to take advice from medical advice specifically <laughs> but yeah. thank you so much chris for laying it out it's really been an illuminating conversation and i think corporate impact practitioners will gain a lot from getting to see this space from your perspective on that note did you have any final thoughts for a community of corporate social impact practitioners before we close our conversation today you know maybe i'll i'll finish with a recommendation said which is i think innovation is so rapid that sometimes we are we feel like we're in and out of science fiction and we sort of are and so i might recommend a book for those who are interested in the subject which is written by kaifu lee and it's called ai 2041 and it's a series of science fiction stories so it is fiction however and it's written in partnership between you know let's say a sort of uh, ai scientist kaifu lee and and a uh, a fiction writer they collaborated together on these stories set in 2041 and then after each chapter kaifu lee writes a technical interpretation of what was there in the chapter so for those looking to kind of get into this subject but find themselves falling asleep when people are talking about you know trillion parameter models it's a good entry point to stimulate some imagination that's a great recommendation i'm going to check that out for sure thank you so much chris this has been wonderful and really appreciate you taking the time today it's a pleasure said i enjoyed it a lot look forward to the next one corporate social impact insights is part of the avpn academy corporate social impact center which is established in partnership with johnson and johnson Miller Trust and Visa. The center also includes self-paced modules, a library of content, and learning circles, which are a monthly series of small group discussions for corporate practitioners. Learn more at academy.avpn.asia. This is a monthly podcast series, and we hope you will tune in for another episode soon. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.